This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway, and we are turning our attention this week on, Her- on Eat Your Words to spirits. So you could say, drink your words today. Um, you know, it's actually finally freezing cold here in New York. I'm sitting here in my coat. There's a little coal uh, wood burning oven here, keeping everyone warm at Roberta's. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty cozy, but, uh, you know, for all are complaining about this really warm winter, which it has been in New York City, it's finally cold. So, uh, you know, what warms what warms you up better than uh, spirits? A neat, stiff drink, uh, particularly moonshine, perhaps. So I have a book today. Um, we're joined by the author of this book, and it is all about moonshine and love. And she's joining us on the phone from her home just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Her name is Troy Ball. Are you there, Troy? Yes, I am. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Troy, good, you, thank you. you. This is a really wonderful book, but you are also the founder and principal of Troy and Sons. Um, it is the, let's see, what do we call this? It is the makers of the first true American moonshine. Quite an accomplishment. Um, so... And this is your first book. It's a memoir. It's called Pure Heart, I should say, A Spirited Tale mm-hmm. of Grace, Grit, and Whiskey. And, <laughs> and it is very much all that. But, you know, this book talk is, you know, speaks about your life and your tremendous journeys and second chances. You started this company in your late 40s. Um, I did. I, I never would have thought I would have gotten into the whiskey-making business, but, but here I am. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an incredible story, and I really want to, you know, talk to you about all aspects of it. Um, but first, just to orient people a little bit about moonshine, you know, what makes this a quintessentially or, you know, the first true American moonshine? Uh, well, um, moonshine, you know, classically, historically, in the 1700s and early, eight, all through the 1800s, actually, was made from grain, water, barley. and yeast. Okay. Uh, no inclusion of sugar. Mm-hmm. And and typically that grain, if you're from anywhere on the Appalachian chain of, of mountains up and down the East Coast, would have been made with corn, water, mm-hmm. and yeast. Okay. Um, that was the classic uh, grain that they made moonshine from because the old farm families were growing corn on their family farms, right? They were right. making bread corn and uh, grits and things like that. And then they would take that same crop to make their whiskey. In our case, what we found is that the historic families, the heritage families, would use white corn because that was their preferred eating corn in the old days. Mm-hmm. 
And that white corn is what we use to make our our whiskey today. Mm. Um, we also use an heirloom white corn that survived since the mid-1800s um, called Crooked Creek Corn. Oh. And it, it grows 12 feet tall. It puts about one ear of corn on per stalk. That's a very large wow. ear of corn, like 12 <laughs> to 14 inches sometimes. And um, it, but it, that type of corn went out of fashion when the hybrids came in because it's a much uh, lower yielding corn. Yeah. You know, we only get about 60 bushels per acre, and a hybrid gets about 230 bushels per acre. Mm. So, so there went the <laughs> there went the old grains. Unfortunately, right. Um, I got very lucky to have this one. That's incredible. So it's a really unique uh, type of corn, first and foremost. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really amazing to 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 see how long or how how far back moonshine really goes. You talk about you know the mm-hmm. Scotch Irish settlers along the Appalachia bringing this tradition mm-hmm. with them from the old world and re- mm-hmm. and re- using corn. And this was enjoyed long before prohibition. But I think that prohibition really gives moonshine its uh, infamy, if you will, and uh, right. it's known as a sort of coarse or unrefined drink due to these shortcuts people were taking during this time, right? Yes, so, that's exactly what happened. Sort of corrupted. You know, I think before before Prohibition, uh, moonshine would not have been called moonshine. Mm. Um, that name liquor. came out of Prohibition. Ah, when, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. liquor, whiskey. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then when uh, Prohibition was in place and they had to resort to cooking their whiskey in the middle of the night so they wouldn't get caught, by the, so their fires yeah. wouldn't be seen... Um, that's where the term moonshine came in, and really all the you know uh, poor distillation techniques began because they were mm. in a hurry um, and they didn't really care because they were just selling the stuff to try right. to make a quick buck because there was an instant market. Yeah, they had standing orders for who how, who knows how many, and then chaos yeah. ensued. Mm-hmm. I think it's a mm-hmm. fascinating story. Um, I, I loved um, learning that you are not the first moonshine female moonshine entrepreneur. You refer to a woman. From the Prohibition era, who who traded moonshine and had diamond-studded yeah. teeth by the <laughs> <Yeah>. name of <laughs> this sounds like a true badass, uh, yeah. Willie yeah. Willie Sharp. What is yeah, that her name? Sharp. Yeah, she, I think she uh, she made really good money because she wasn't paying any tax on her moonshine, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think those were the days, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. But you know, the the moonshine, I, I think. It's important to note that prior to that period of time, Mm -hmm. people would have been making um, better quality uh, spirits Mm. at home. And 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 the old men up here in the mountains uh, outside of Asheville, they're the ones that basically taught me that there's a sweet spot in the distillation process. Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. And Mm -hmm. if you just grab the sweet spot, it's the pure heart of the distillation. Mm. And um, that whiskey from that part of the distillation is very smooth. It doesn't have any contaminants in it, no acetones and aldehydes and things that make the whiskey burn and mm. give you headaches. <laughs> and so those old-timers knew that, and they mm. would just save that p- portion of the distillation for themselves, and then they'd mix the heads and tails together and sell it down the road, Ooh. you know, to the fools. <laughs> uh, so you're saying a, a sneakier way, or I guess a less... Um uh, a less quality way of making it would to be add adding the distillation from all the different points, not just the pure heart. 
<laughs> if I'm explaining right. that right. Yeah, okay. And, okay. And actually, to mm. be honest with you, that's the way most whiskey in America is made. Mm-hmm. It's made with 100% of the distillation basically mixed all together. The impure. And so you get the heads and the tails mm. mixed in with the hearts. And um, sadly, many uh, people think that whiskey has to burn. And it really doesn't. These oh. men up here, they're drinking uh, very, very smooth, lovely uh, moonshine or pure hearts whiskey uh, that doesn't burn mm-hmm. uh, because they because they were smart. <laughs> so you're trying to subvert the the you know the common misperceptions of of moonshine, really, with uh, bringing it back to this yes. um, the purest yes. form. That's really cool. Yes, and I, you know what what really kind of convinced me to get into this business was when I realized that there was this high-quality keeper kind of moonshine. That's what mm. they called it. It's the keeper kind. Um, I realized that it, that particular type of moonshine or white whiskey was not on the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing on the market in 2008 were some really rough, terrible products. So I thought, why aren't we making this really gorgeous white spirit and drinking American cocktails mm. instead of Russian cocktails um, or Mexican, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, because uh, this is our white spirit from America. Yeah, yeah. And, and when it's well-made, gosh, it makes a gorgeous uh, cocktail. So uh, that's what drove me to start the business. I thought it was something really missing from our, from our world here in America and that it deserved to be brought to to people's attention. Yeah, and it's really part of the whole story of, the, I guess, the revival of American distilling heritage, um, which yes. is yeah, seeing a comeback. And I love the idea that, you know, this you're making it the keeper way, which it seems like this was mm-hmm. like a, you know, friends only, you know, a, a coveted secret mm-hmm. kind of stash. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's mm-hmm. why it didn't get around yeah. uh, production too much. Um, no, that's yeah. right. It, it it definitely was uh, coveted. In Secret. fact, there was a little old lady who went into um, one of the liquor stores here in Marion, and she was buying a bottle of my uh, Troy and Sons Platinum whiskey. Mm-hmm. And the guy working in the store said, "Hey, I haven't tasted that yet. Do you, do you like it?" She she looks at him and she says, "Oh yes." Yeah. She says, "This is the kind you hide and keep mm-hmm. for yourself." <laughs> I'm sure you must have to. I was to, so happy. I mean, yeah. I, that was the best review I ever <laughs> could have gotten, in my opinion. <laughs> that is the true essence of yeah. The, yeah, this stuff. That is so fun. You must have, have to explain to people so much that, no, it's it's not going to hurt when you drink it. Right. Um, right. That's so funny because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that... You know, it's a great story that you were bringing this back. And I, I know that uh, you had to go through so much ordeals going through all the Byzantine laws to get this produced. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that and why why it was so difficult well, to make it legal. Um, yeah, you know, first of all, just getting a federal permit for a distillery is quite a quite an ordeal. Okay. You know, it's hundreds of pages of, of documentation and applications and support that you have to generate. And you're supposed to have a distillery basically um, designed and built so that somebody can come inspect you mm. from the state, from your from your state. Um, they, they send someone to inspect your distillery. So you really have to make a, a serious investment in getting into the distilling business. Yeah. And so I spent, Gosh. oh, about a year 
uh, once I got a federal permit, I, I, I had it attached to this little farm out in Old Fort uh, where this family had been growing this old heirloom corn that we use. Mm-hmm. And uh, we spent almost a year in a little 18 by 18 foot barn building doing test distillations there. And we built different stills. We Our first still was made with a pressure cooker, mm-hmm. um, which was how one of the men uh, made his whiskey down in Alabama had met along the way. And it worked great. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then the second still uh, we made was um, with whiskey barrels. So mm-hmm. we actually created steam in a big 100-gallon pot, and we popped that steam into a whiskey barrel that we had filled with mash. Mm-hmm. And and the steam starts the mash boiling slow. It's a slow process, like hours right. and hours and hours. Oh, my gosh. But eventually, the steam causes the mash to start boiling, and then the vapor that comes off that mash is captured and piped into a second whiskey barrel. Mm-hmm. That's called your thumper barrel. And it fills up with steam, and when it gets full of steam, it really legitimately thumps and makes a lot of noise, and you worry the whole thing's going to blow up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, um, and then the vapor leaves the thumper barrel and goes into a third barrel that, that we had a copper coil in, a 50-foot coil, uh, submersed in cold water. And um, and then the whiskey comes right out of the, the, the bottom of that uh, barrel. We had yeah. a you know, penetration through the bottom of the barrel where the copper could stick out. And so that vapor, when it hits the cold water and runs through the condensing coil, it, it, it condenses and turns to a liquid. And... Uh, it was quite the adventure. So we, so we talk about we experimentation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, then I'd ordered a sixty-gallon copper still from a, uh, an outlaw guy in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was kind of this renegade. I mean, really colorful guy, and he turned out to be so much help to me because um, he had been distilling, I think, for many, many years. And and when I'd run into trouble. I could call him. His name is Colonel Wilson. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if he served time, <laughs> but I could say, Colonel Wilson, I said, I've got a problem here. And he'd say, well, what is it, little lady? And I'd say, well, I said, it's so cold outside. It's like 25 degrees outside, and I cannot keep the mash working because, you know, uh-huh. mash has to it's be boiling, you know, working at about 80 degrees. And um, he says, oh, that's a real simple fix because I, I had the mash in 50-gallon barrels too, right? Mm-hmm. He goes, just go down to the pet store and get some aquarium heaters. <laughs> Drop those in the mesh and you'll be good Whoa. to go. <laughs> wow. Can you believe that? Oh, my God. I mean, and it worked? So I go to the pet store and I order 10 aquarium heaters. They thought, <laughs> oh, what, what is this? Is she going into competition or something? <laughs> anyway, Whoa. that's how I, I – but, he, you know, these people would help me to problem-solve things mm-hmm. all the time. Oh, my gosh. You know, it was just fantastic. Folks, it was my education. It, that is incredible. And it worked, right, the, the yeah, heaters on that yeah. cold day? All, oh, my god! Actually, all of them worked. Mm-hmm. All three of those stills that we used in the little distillery out there Incredible. all worked. And, and then what we were doing to sort of complicate everything and to really determine how to come up with our best recipe is we were buying different varieties of corn, right. yellow corns versus white mm-hmm. corns, and we were milling them in different ways. Okay. So some were very finely milled, others were coarsely milled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sometimes we used whole corn, sometimes we used sugar, sometimes we didn't. And so I was tracking every single batch of everything. And then we were trying to cross-reference the taste, like doing taste tests and um, 
Sounds and then like a we lot of drinking. also did different <laughs> filtrations. Mm-hmm. So the old men, I asked John one day, John McIntyre owned the farm. I said, do you know how to make charcoal? <laughs> and he starts laughing. He goes, well, no. He says, but I have a brother who used to be in the medical charcoal business. <laughs> oh. I said, okay, well, well, do you think you could ask him? <laughs> and the next thing, I said, I'd like to make some char- uh, charcoal out of cherry wood uh-huh. and out of, you know, sugar maple, some of these different woods and see if we filter the whiskey through it, what it does to the flavor. Uh-huh. And um, the next, literally, the next day I got out there, and John's like, Troy, I've got something for you. It's in the paper bag over there. He had a bag full of cherry wood charcoal that they had stayed up all night. Oh, making. my gosh. Talk- I know. I know. And so then I'm like, okay, we we got to go back no. to Lowe's because <laughs> we need to build a, a, a cylinder Um, that we can fill this charcoal in and then pour the whiskey through. (laughs) And so we would go to Lowe's. We made 100 trips to Lowe's over that year. And and we would build our own filtration uh, device. Uh, So it was just great fun. It was great fun and and spirited. (laughs) A community (laughs) effort. And also interesting because there really is truly different flavor profiles you would get from these different recipes. I can imagine. I know it sounds Mm -hmm. like something something inherently, you know, a passed down tradition, not, you know, mass produced. Uh, There's a million ways to do it. And uh, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to produce, and also mm-hmm. you really you really can affect the flavor of the spirit based on how you run that still. Mm. So if the still is is you're cooking it too hot, you're you know you're you're changing the flavor of the distillate. If you're if you aren't um, running it through enough um, like plates, or mm. if the vapor's not hitting enough surfaces. Um, you change the everything. Everything affects the. It's flavor. so different when you make something that is, uh, you know, just a few batches. It can be inconsistent, and then you're trying to actually nail down the best flavor that you would like to yes. present in each bottle. That's yeah. What a process! Yeah. What a process! Yeah. Uh, and pe- uh, people mm-hmm. ask me all the time, "Well, how did it feel to be a woman in a man's business?" You know, mm. and I and I'd say this was the most natural thing ever. I mean, this mm. is cooking. Yeah. <laughs> And I bring mean, up Willie thing, Willie Sharp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it's really like uh, making a big pot of oatmeal, cooking mm. mash, and uh, it. it was it was perfect. I felt perfectly at home doing all tinkering. That. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't wait. I hope everyone gets a taste of Troy and Sons very soon, and we're going to talk much more after a quick little commercial break. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food 
and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chef's Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. All right, we're back chatting with Troy Ball. She is the author of Pure Heart, A Spirited Tale of Grace, Grit, and Whiskey, and the owner of Troy and Sons, Moonshine. So, Troy, we were just talking a little bit about um, the history of moonshine. I just wanted to bring up, because there's so many colorful words for moonshine (laughs) that are peppered throughout this book. Um, So maybe you've heard it by the name of uh, White Lightning. There's one. Then there's Mountain Dew. Of course, this is before the soda came out. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about pure heart, which is that sweet spot in the distillation process. And then there is a 24-hour punch, which is something else from the heyday of, of sort of uh, prohibition moonshine mm-hmm. drinking, which is where mm-hmm. you, uh, and it's deceptively strong because it tastes like citrus. You 24-hour mm-hmm. soak, or what do you call it? Uh, di- uh, <laughs> What do you call it? <laughs> infused, infused, yes. The fruit. Yeah. <laughs> Citrus in there. And uh and then there's let's have a spider leg, which uh there's refers a spider leg. A little spider leg is the little, you know, uh when you swirl the cup and you get kinda like you do with wine, you know, mm-hmm. and you get the you little the legs, legs running down the sides of the whiskey glass. So it seems like it's just a little bit that mm-hmm. <laughs> the old men would say, Oh, let's just have a little spider leg. Like it's just a tiny little bit, mm-hmm. but really oh. they didn't mean that. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So or have two. And also liquor, mm-hmm. you know, L I K K E R. I mean oh. that's the way the local old local people would spell it. Uh they often called it liquor. <laughs> and I love uh, that um you you paint a really rich portrait of the Appalachian uh, culture and uh, is actually gaining a, a bit of interest in the food world. Um, this region mm-hmm. for its mm-hmm. for its heritage and uh, you know mm-hmm. being it was a uh, cut off from um, the rest of the country a bit by rail railroads for quite a while mm-hmm. until and uh, you write this wonderful history um, until one of the Vanderbilts decided to build the largest res- residence in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. the Biltmore Mansion. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it brought in a whole city of help and its own railway stop to this mansion. And it is still right. the largest mansion. And that really mm. changed and it's kind of ushered in the industrialization, um, at yeah. least outside of Asheville, um, in Asheville. I think it really, I think the Biltmore Estate really influenced uh, Asheville um, as, a, as a town and region because they brought in all these artisans from from around the country and from Europe hmm. to work on the construction of this this home, which was the largest in in North America, actually. And uh, and then after the home was finished, many of those people settled here. Mm-hmm. So you know, Asheville's very rich in the in the arts, mm-hmm. uh, but all all sorts of ironworking and woodworking and and weaving and, and clay and it's it's a just a rich rich cultural area here mm-hmm. and the food is fantastic as well you know we're a um a, a region that uh, i think really likes to appreciate its local foods mm-hmm. particularly heirloom variety of foods right um, somebody fact, was still I, growing I had in that heirloom corn. hogs I raised. Oh, really? Wow. Be- because I had, um, uh, you know, all this corn mash, I thought, well, shoot, we should be not just getting rid of it. 
we should be feeding it to livestock like George Washington did mm-hmm. in his distillery, literally outside of the door of the distillery right. where the farm is. What are you going to do with that, um, you know, mash? It's great nutrition yeah. for yeah. livestock. Yeah. And well, 3% alcohol, the, the hogs are happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 well, I bet. You know, but, but it's so nice to, to be in a town that appreciates all, all these heirloom foods. Yeah. We also make, we also mill our, our corn, Crooked Creek corn, into grits, and they're sold around town here and found in some of the restaurants and in stores. Wow. Yeah, it's a fascinating story of revival and um, close, closely kept traditions still going. Um, I think that uh, it, it was really interesting to read about how prohibition really wiped out the economy, and so the downtowns were just dilapidated and became a shell. Um, and then you write that the, you know, the activists slowly, you know, created a culture, um, starting from the seventies on. And then, um, it, it created a really unique culture there because it was, uh, you know, of course, uh, depressed. It was, a the whole city was, uh, in debt mm-hmm. by millions. Well, what had happened was in, in like the 1920s when the great depression happened, Asheville had, you know, $70 million or something in debt. They had really, they had really um, taken on a lot of debt to do some major development work in downtown. Mm-hmm. And so rather than filing bankruptcy, uh, as many cities did around the country, um, they just dug in their heels and they said, we're going to pay off all this debt. And it took them the next 50 years to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but so the good thing about all that was the downtown ended up boarded up largely mm-hmm. until the 80s, and all the buildings were preserved. So we missed that 1960s and 70s thing of let's come in and tear down the old buildings and build, you know, unattractive buildings. Develop, so yeah. Asheville's, mm-hmm. Asheville's very intact in terms of uh, retaining all of that early. 1920s architecture and 30s and, and even uh, earlier. So it makes it a very pretty town. And then um, there was a man named Julian Price who had inherited quite a lot of money and he wanted to revitalize downtown. So they uh, formed a company called Public Interest Projects, which basically would lend money to young entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who wanted to bring business into downtown Asheville. And and they would, I mean, it was cheap money, and they would help these businesses understand their financial situation. You know, they would meet with them every month, and they would advise them and coach them so that they could learn to be successful business people, and it worked perfectly. And I, I truly think if there hadn't been Julian Price and Public Interest Project, Asheville would have been a much longer time uh, revitalizing. Mm-hmm. And and you also write that it was sort of um, the... Your business and other distilleries sort of rode this wave of the, the interest in craft beer brewing, and that's mm-hmm. that making a comeback mm-hmm. in um, mm-hmm. these parts, and also throughout America, for that matter. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really it's really exciting to see this uh, building momentum, and uh, with businesses like yours, it is. So, it um, is, and I was very fortunate. I became friends with. Um, Oscar Wong, who was the founder of Highland Brewing Company, was mm-hmm. the first brewery in Asheville. And that's saying a lot because, you know, Asheville's been like Beer City, USA for, I think, five years straight. Mm, wow. And um, Oscar became a lovely, wonderful mentor to me. And he had been 
in the in craft beer from the beginning, and he had, he he said, "Look, I made a lot of mistakes. I, I bought the wrong equipment or undersized equipment." He mm. said, "You need to do it this way, Troy." Mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. ended up actually investing in my distillery as the wow. first investor. That's great. Um, so that was amazing Damn to have a mentor effort. like that. Yeah. Um, now we are almost out of time, but it's it's so funny that we didn't talk too much about uh, your other um, your other project that you founded, which is the Thoughtful House Center for Children in Austin, Texas. Oh yeah, which is now yes. called Johnson Center for Child Health and Development. And uh, yes, yes, uh, that's the Johnson family out mm-hmm. of New York. It was renamed for them because they became the big benefactor of okay. Thoughtful House. Thoughtful House is an autism treatment and research center um, for children with autism and on the spectrum. And I was one of the founders, and we, I think it sees, you know, well over 3,000 children a year now, maybe maybe many more than that even. Um, and we did some of the early um, medical um, research mm-hmm. on vaccines, mm-hmm. um, basic, basically, because there was all that controversy about, about whether vaccines were affecting um, children yes. and, and triggering, turning on autism. Um, so we, we did the first ever primate studies on the full regime of childhood vaccines. It was, can you believe that had never been done? Yeah. And it's such I a... Mean, they, had t- I mean, they had tested each vaccine individually, but they had never tested them. For Okay, you're going to get three today and three next month and, you know, and you're going to do them all within this many years. So that had never been looked at, and, and we took a deep dive look at that and, and came up with some really disturbing uh, findings as it mm-hmm. related to the primates. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know. I just tried to, you know, I had two special needs sons. Mm-hmm. I have two special needs mm-hmm. sons and a, and a third son who's adopted. And um, I just had to spend my, my the first 25 years of my life trying to keep the boys alive. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's why as I, as I it came across this idea of, uh, creating Thoughtful House, uh, I went ahead and did it because it was something I could feel good about um, and felt like it might make a difference mm. for a lot of people. And uh, and I couldn't be out there in the real world, you know, working a normal job mm-hmm. or creating a business because I was too tied to uh, trying to keep the guys alive. Yeah. And um, anyway, they, they, I was told they wouldn't live Past their teenage, right. And they're like 30 and 28 now, so so we're doing good. Well, you know, reading the first few chapters of your book, um, it's so touching and so sensitive, and you can really see why later in life, you know, coming up with all your processes for making moonshine is no sweat after all the Mm -hmm. determination and strength, you know, you went through raising your children. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're exactly right. It's so difficult to uh, live under um, the stress of, fragile, medically fragile children mm-hmm. um, who are undiagnosed, and um, it makes you become super strong. You have to. <laughs> yes, you have to for them. absolutely. And so nothing else really matters. It's very difficult after that. <laughs> You'll just take on anything without without being too worried about it. <laughs> you, you seem to be endowed with superhuman strength and, and compassion and uh, courage, oh. really. I've done the best Absolutely. I can. I hope, I, and I hope the book. I hope the book tells the yeah. story well. I, 
It's beautifully <laughs> written. My goal. I'm so glad that you shared this book. I, I know it's a, I was trying to describe it to people. I'm like, well, it's a book about uh, whiskey and <laughs> a life. And, 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 and motherhood. Yeah, and, motherhood. And also financial uh, disaster. <laughs> and entrepreneurship. And I think anyone who's an entrepreneur, whether it's spirits or something else, uh, can, can learn a lot from this. So. Yeah. Well, great thank tale. you so much. Yeah. It's great to have me on. Well, thanks so much for a great chat about it. Um, I hope everyone gets their hands on Pure Heart, just out now from Day Street Press. Um, it's written by Troy Ball. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Oh, I like the way you do. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.